how do you connect the offline metrics that you have in anything you're doing in any model in the lab to what's going to be the real impact that that model has on your product. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show about machine learning in the real world. And I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. Xavier Amatrian is co-founder and CTO of Curai, a ML-based primary care chat system that we're going to talk about today. Before that, he was VP of engineering at a website called Quora, which I absolutely love. And before that, he ran the recommendation system at Netflix, which was especially famous for the Netflix recommendation prize. I could not be more excited to talk to him today. I want to start with talking about what you're working on now. I mean, you've had a really long and interesting career in ML, but it probably makes sense to talk about Curai, right? Is that? Yeah, Curai. Curai. Can you just, first, can you tell me what Curai does before we get into, you know, how machine learning fits in? Yeah. I mean, the basic level is an end-to-end virtual primary care service. It provides everything that you could need from your primary care doctor, but it provided it provides it through an application, through chat. And our goal is to provide the best possible healthcare at the lowest possible price and make it very accessible and very affordable for everyone in the world, while at the same time increasing quality. And the way to enable that is using technology and more concretely AI and machine learning. Right, because we feel like one of the things you can do through machine learning and AI is to automate and therefore make things more efficient. That's pretty obvious. But the other thing that might not be so obvious is that you can also make things higher quality, right? And that's very much related to the notion of data-driven decision-making, algorithms, and science in general, which should be uh, behind all the medical decisions. So the combination of sort of quality, accessibility is what drives our product. But again, our product is basically a virtual primary care service that is provided through an application and through a chat-based interaction. And so could I could I use it today? Is it, would I, you if can, I had you like can, a, a health issue, I could, I could talk yeah, to a virtual... If, yeah, we're now available in seven states in the U.S. So that's, let me make sure I don't miss any. It's California, Florida, it's Illinois, Ohio, South Carolina, and North Carolina. So those are the seven states. We plan on being available in the 50 states by the end of the summer. So we're expanding rapidly. And the only reason we're not in the other 50 states is because there's legal <laughs> implications of expanding and you need a different license for all the different states. But yes, if you're in one of those seven states, you can download it and start using it for free. And after the, the free trial, the price is very affordable too. So it's $7.99 a month and you can use it as many times, no copays. You don't pay per usage. It's just like a flat fee and you get everything, including prescriptions. You can go and pick up your prescription in the pharmacy, go to your lab test if you need any blood test or anything. And we do all of that through a network of partnerships. And the healthcare team, which I'm sure we'll get into, is a combination of humans and AI. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like maybe triages the questions and the the ones that are easier, the AI tries to answer, and then the harder ones go to a human? Or, or how, how do you think about that? Yeah, it's a great question. And that that 
typically the traditional approach, right? It's like you put the AI up front and then whatever the AI decides it can, it can do, it does. And then you pass the rest to humans. We go uh, well beyond that. We consider the AI to be just another member of the team and the AI never leaves the room. So what it will do is it will call other people. We, we have a care team that is composed of clinical associates, medical assistants, and then licensed physicians in all the states that we operate, and then the AI. Now, the AI will sometimes, as you said, will take over the interaction and just drive it. And whenever it's either finished with what, whatever task it was doing or not sure, it will call in the physician, but it then stays in the room and it provides assessment and augmentation to the physician. So it's both user-facing and doctor-facing. So the AI is kind of like the connection between the two ends. And very importantly, in order to understand this, I, I, I think it was kind of implicit on what I was describing. The doctors are part of our QRI care team. So it's like part of the team that is not only providing the care, but also helping us develop the product and helping the system and the algorithms learn from the data that we're generating. So we call this, this is the so-called uh, learning healthcare system, right? Because we are, at the same time, the AI is helping and augmenting the doctors and the doctors are learning from the AI. But very importantly, the AI is learning from being part of this team and from the data that is being gathered as part of sort of like this end-to-end -end process. And so how is the AI augmenting the doctors? Is it like suggesting links to kind of go to for research or like like suggest like auto-completing like possible responses? How does it actually work from a from a doctor's yes. perspective? So the AI is doing all the above. So yes, it is doing all of that. It, I I I mean, as you know, I mean, uh, people think of the AI as sort of like a magical entity that exists somewhere. And the AI, what it is, is a combination of different algorithms that are controlled by some protocol, right? So there's different machine learning algorithms doing different things. And all of them are augmenting the doctors in different ways. But in a typical or in a simple scenario, what will happen is the AI will be part of the so-called history taking and it will start by asking questions to the patients, documenting that as entities in electronic health record, it will call in the doctor and then it will say, hey, I have a differential diagnosis, which is a set of possible diagnoses that I think this could be happening. Now you take it from here. But by the way, I can also suggest questions that you could ask the patient if you want to dig into any of these things. So the, the doctor at that point can say, oh, wait, this could be COVID hold on, can you suggest a few questions that I could ask the patient to either confirm or invalidate the, the hypothesis that it's COVID? And then the, the algorithm will suggest questions that either confirm or not that particular hypothesis. As it's going along, it's extracting things from the text because these are all chat-based, so that it's extracting things from the text. It's highlighting important things. It's also summarizing the conversation for the next doctor that comes in to sort of like get a summary and even going all the way to suggesting treatment if the doctor needs a suggestion for a treatment once the diagnosis has been confirmed. Very importantly, the AI or the algorithms never make the final decision to either diagnose or to treat, right? That's always on a, on a physician. 
And we always say this, it's very important in this kind of environment to have the physician in the loop and to have sort of like the physician make the final decision, but we can augment them and make them much more efficient, but also uh, better quality, right? Because in our offline analysis in the labs, our diagnosis algorithms, for example, are higher accuracy than the average physician. So we're pretty confident and they keep getting better. We're pretty confident that those diagnosis algorithms are going to be better than most physicians. And even with that, we're not saying we're just going to make the diagnosis. We're just presenting it to the physician and saying, hey, this could be one of these three things or these 10 things. How do you want to go from here? So, I mean, I could see, I could totally see from like, uh, you know, kind of communicating with the patient standpoint, including me, that it would be kind of comforting to say, hey, the doctor always makes the final decision. But, you know, this is more of an interview about real world AI. And, you know, it does mm-hmm. seem like with, you know, like example, like, you know, chess used to be before, I think, alpha chess or maybe the latest version of Stockfish, the best chess programs were like, you know, these hybrid systems with the human in the loop. But then at some point, you know, the AI got got good enough that the, you know, the human loop only messes yep. things up, right? I mean, do, do, you, do you ever have cases where you think that the ML system works better than a human operator and, and, and maybe it shouldn't actually give the final decision to, to a doctor? It's a, it's a great question. I, I, I think, as I said before, generally speaking, it's not that hard. Well, I mean, it's taking us a, a, a few years, but it's not, quote unquote, that hard to get an algorithm that is better than the average uh, physician. Now, that being said, it's much harder to get an algorithm that it's better than the combination of the human plus the AI. So in even in, in the examples that you're mentioning, you know, the combination of humans plus AI in chess, if the human is relatively good, meaning a professional player, is it's hard to beat, right? So uh, an AI alone versus a combination of AI plus human is hard to beat. But in the case of, of healthcare, one of the important things to understand is that that is an imperfect information game, right? So it's, it's, it's not about if you had the perfect information, uh, the algorithm would probably always beat the human, right? And you would be very easy to just beat the human with sort of like all the perfect information in the world. However, in the case of medicine and healthcare, there's a lot that goes on with empathizing with the patient, understanding even you know things that are called like social determinants, where do they come from? How are they going to understand? How can you communicate mm, the possibility of something being likely or not? And that is, it's very hard to do if you're not a human that is trained to have this level of empathy, so to speak, right? So there's the... The interesting question, and I, I, I keep talking to people that have very different opinions with that, right? Like there is the purely extreme rational opinion that all you want to have from the outcome as a patient is have a list of possible diagnoses with a probability, and you'll be able to interpret them. And that's, you know, if you're a hyper-rational person, that is true. You want to know if you have a 0.2% probability of having cancer, you want to know that there's a 0.2 probability and you think you can deal with it. The reality is that most people don't know how to interpret that, right? Like, what does that even mean, a 0.2 probability of having cancer? And do you want to communicate that or do you want to interpret 
that and then follow the patient along and make sure that that probability doesn't get to a point that is more likely than not. And I think that's where the human judgment is really key. And that's very different from a pure probability that is output from any kind of uh, machine learning algorithm. Interesting. I, I guess I would think that I would actually want to have the, the clear probabilities, but maybe everyone thinks that and they don't, they don't really want that. No, I, I think you're probably right. If you are in the tech bubble, so to speak, and you're rational and you play music and you're a mathematician or you like math, uh, you think you can very rationally deal with mm, those kinds of probabilities and work with them. But there's a lot of people that are not like that. And it's, that's where the empathizing and understanding who you're talking to, it's, it's really key. One of, one of the important aspects, which is somewhat connected to what we're talking is, in particular, our service, we are not designing it for you know, the tech-savvy people of Silicon Valley or anywhere. We're really using technology to provide a very accessible and high-quality service for people that are usually don't even have access to high-quality healthcare and they're underinsured, uninsured, and so on. So we need to understand sort of like the, the, the social background of how are these people going to be interacting with the technology and how they are going to need sort of like the human uh, aspect of the technology to sort of like help them even understand what's happening and how to react to it. So I think that's also very important because, I mean, we could get it. This is a more of a, a philosophical, but we get uh, usually blamed in, in, in tech companies, you know, that, you know, we're designed things only thinking of people like us. <laughs> and then you realize, and particularly in healthcare, it's very interesting because as soon as you start talking to doctors, and to anyone from sort of medical profession, you understand it's like, gosh, yeah, you know, the way of thinking is different. It's like even how they think, it's not purely mathematical. And we, you need to have sort of like a level of sort of understanding of the different ways that people interpret and process information. Now, that being said, I'm not okay. saying that the traditional paternalistic view of medicine is good. The one which the doctor knew everything and wouldn't say anything to the patient, say, trust me, I know the truth. You have to do what, I, what I'm telling you, but I'm not even going to say what your diagnosis is. No, I am totally against that. And I think there needs to be a middle ground and the patients need to have access to their data and need to be, we need to be transparent with what's going on and give information as much as possible. And that's part of sort of like our model too, for sure. So go, going back to a comment you made um, earlier that that your diagnosis is better than the average doctor, or I guess that your system is better than yeah. the average doctor. I, how? Well, my first question on that is, how would you even know that? Like, do you follow up and find out later what the real diagnosis was? And also, how would you train a system to be much better than the the average doctor? Do you somehow have a way of finding? more more accurate doctors and then using that for training? Or how, how does that even work? <laughs> yeah, th this is a great question. So when I said that, I, I specifically added in the lab, right? We, we were better than the average physician in the lab. And that's because the only real ground truth that we have in to evaluate this are were a so-called clinical vignettes, which are basically cases that are documented and they're agreed upon and they've been published 
and there's not many of those, unfortunately, uh, so that's something that is lacking. But when we are making diagnosis on those vignettes, we kind of like agree that that's a ground truth that's been published, and that's the one that we use as the measuring bar. There's a public data set, which is pretty small, but we also have our own internal one that we keep using for development. And we even use synthetic data and all kinds of different data that we can get into. Now, uh, unfortunately, the generation of ground truth in medicine is extremely hard. And there are uh, a lot of studies out there that with doctors, for example, there's a famous, well, famous in our, in our field, but well-known publication by the Human DX Project, where they, they found out that the average accuracy of a single doctor on similar vignettes to the ones that I'm saying, so medical cases, it was roughly, I think, around 60%, between 50 and 60%. And in order to get past sort of like a, a, a reasonable 80% accuracy, you had to aggregate the opinion of six to eight doctors. So basically, the only way you have to really increase that accuracy and say, okay, I'm going to ask eight different doctors and then take the opinion of the ones that agree the most and use that as my ground truth, which is honestly what many of us do in the lab to generate those vignettes is not trust one single doctor, but ask many and then sort of like have quality processes to understand who is right and then take that as the, as the ground truth. But in order to, to have a learning healthcare system and sort of like have this system improve, the only thing you can do is sort of establish that those mechanisms in which the system is actually learning and improving from itself. And you do have sort of humans in the loop having the follow-up and saying, okay, we, we diagnosed this first, was this correct? And very importantly, you also have the ability to have follow-ups and very uh, constant follow-ups to understand if you got it right or if you, you missed something, right? One of the uh, nice things about the system that we have, uh, which is uh, all virtual and chat-based and message-based, is that we we can follow up and we can automate follow up with the patients at a very little cost or almost no cost. So we can literally sort of like have the patient come back every hour and check on the patient. It's like, hey, did the fever go up? Did it go down? Did we get it right or not? Which is usually not the case in a normal medical situation, right? You go see the doctor and then if you're lucky, you see them in two weeks. And that's the, the sampling time between sort of like different data points is much uh, coarser than what we have. Yeah, it's funny. I'm thinking about my own interactions with doctors. And I, I was thinking, you know, when I when I kind of call a hospital or, or call my my doctor you know, to ask them what to do, I feel like I can almost guarantee that they're going to ask me to come in and, and get more tests. And, and my little sister is also a doctor. And I feel like when I call her, I can almost guarantee that she's going to tell me, Lucas, you're fine. You know, you're being ridiculous. Like just, you know, drink some water and get, get yeah. some rest. And so they're, they're clearly optimizing, you know, my sister and, and, you know, a professional that I call optimizing for kind of different things. I guess, how do you think about that? Like, what do you kind of optimize for in your interactions? Like I would imagine that like missing a serious condition would be so bad that you would really want to err on the side of caution with your, um, suggestions to patients, but, but how would you, I mean, how do you know if you're doing a good job there? Yeah. I mean, definitely patient safety is uttermost, you know, concern and what that is, that is very critical and our 
care team is is very much you know fixated on on patient safety first and we do things that even go against sort of like the what would be good for the business because of patient safety and that's understood and it's the right thing to do however one of the important pieces here around patient safety and around sort of like not erring on the side of being extremely conservative is one, the population that we are dealing with is population that doesn't generally have good access to healthcare. So if our response to their concerns was always, hey, go and get a blood test and you need to go through this super expensive procedure and good luck with it and come back to us. And that would be the kind of service we would be providing. These people would not come back, come back, right? Because they, they, they literally cannot afford it. And it's not something that it's optimized in any way. So we need to provide the best possible care with optimizing also the, the cost side of the equation for them and for mm, the overall system. And the reason we can do that is because we have this high level of access and accessibility so we can play it safe because we can always tell them, hey, come back in two hours if your fever gets past this or if you start coughing tonight, come back, right? That's something that most doctors, one of the reasons they are on the side of the safety, on the safety side, sometimes excessively is one is liability, but the other one is because they can't assume that they're going to be in touch with you uh, for the next few weeks, right? So it's like, gosh, I need to just make sure that this doesn't happen in the next two weeks. If they had the ability to say, hey, you're going to be calling me in every two hours if there's something happening, you know, they could take sort of like a little bit more of a less, mm -hmm. uh, a, a little less aggressive approach, but that's usually not possible. But in a system like this, where there's a lot of automation and a lot of accessibility through a virtual uh, and through an application and through a phone, you can actually do that. And it's much more efficient. And in, more importantly, it's more efficient also long-term for the health uh, of the patient, right? Because you're catching things right when they happen and you're not letting it get to a point that is like, oh gosh, now it's too late. Now we need to do this surgery. So. Can you tell me a little bit about your your kind of tech stack behind the scenes? I mean, you're actually really deploying, it sounds like, multiple models into production mm -hmm. and, and running them live. Are you like continuously updating these models? Like how do you how do you think about that? Are you are you retraining them constantly on the the feedback that you're getting from the human operators? Yeah, there's a combination of different models and each one has its own cycle. We do have uh, what we call the, the learning loop, which is sort of like the ability to inject data back into the models and retrain them. But there, there's a combination of different models that have different levels of, I would say, velocity in, in the way that they can be retrained and they can be uh, redeployed. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, that is not any different than any other company. When I was at Netflix, we had the same. We had some that had a lot of data and were retrained daily. And there were others that it, honestly, they needed sort of like longer windows of data and more data to be retrained. And you didn't need to retrain that that often. So we're, we're in the same place, particularly, for example, things like diagnosis model, we don't get that much 
good quality granular data on diagnosis like daily, right? So it, it doesn't make sense. And we need to make sure that that data is high quality and we combine it with synthetic data that we generate from a simulator. And there's a lot of sort of like data cooking going behind the scenes for making sure that those diagnosis models are are good. So that's a model that is not going to be updated that frequently. Now, there are others that are around, say, entity re recognition or intent classification or things like that, that we do gather sort of like more constant data, and those can be updated more, more often. Mm. And I will say, just to clarify for everyone who's listening, our modeling and, and our even our research is at the intersection of natural language on one side, and then medical decision-making on the other. And they both intersect, right? Mm -hmm. So there's an intersection of both, but we kind of like go all the way from using GPT-3 and language models to using synthetic data from expert systems uh, to train diagnosis models. And there's a very cool kind of like intersection of both things, whereas like the purely knowledge-based knowledge-intensive approach of traditional AI systems in medicine and all the way to language models and very much deep learning approaches. And we we have different models that are in the intersection of those, some of, some of which, as you can tell, some the ones that are more on, on the data-intensive language side, we do get more constant data and we can retrain. The ones that are more knowledge-intensive, we have to sort of like do... do intermediate processes, so to speak. That makes sense. Do you, do you literally use GPT-3? We do. In, in fact, we just published a paper about it. Who uh, We won the best paper award at one of the workshops at ACL. In that particular case, we were using GPT-3 for generating training data for language summarization. Uh, so that's an interesting approach. I think one that I know several people are following in different domains, but instead of using GPT-3 directly at inference time to use it as a way to enhance and generate high volumes of training data with different priming mechanisms, it's a very interesting approach and one that we showed in our publication that it's actually better than just having a lot of humans generating training uh, data. So that's an interesting... Wait, can, you, can you tell me more about how this works? So how do, how do you exactly generate the, the data and what's the, the, the summarization task? Yeah. It, yeah, it is a summarization task. And summarization of um, medical conversations is pretty hard because you need to generate the data, but also you need to generate data that is, sorry, you need to generate, you need to have the original data, but then generate summaries. And you need to generate summaries and examples of summaries, which are mostly correct, but some that might be incorrect to sort of like also make decisions on when you're training the model. It's It has to learn like what is a good medical summarization and what's a bad medical summarization. So in the case, in the case of this project, what we did is prime GPT-3 with a number of examples of both positive and, and, and negative uh, summaries to conversations, mm -hmm. and then have it generate thousands of different training examples that we use to train our own offline model. And interestingly, I mean, 
the, the availability of more data, but also more nuanced variabilities that GPT-3 was generating itself was made that the final model that we were training was better than anything that we could have trained with our own data and our own human labelers. It's now, so interesting because you would think that the the generation task would be so much harder than the decision task if something's a good summary or not. It's kind of amazing to me that that, that, that works so well. Yeah, I mean, in, in all, I mean, to be clear, we could have tried to 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 use GPT-3 directly for the task at hand if we had had access to sort of like unlimited resources and fine tuning, and also, which by the way, I know that OpenAI is gonna is gonna open the API for fine tuning soon, but we didn't have at that time. And also, very importantly, there's a tricky aspect here with the privacy aspect of, of the data that we're dealing with, right? We we don't want to be in a situation where we are sending GPT-3 data that is private from our patients unless there's some guarantees of sort of like very strict compliance and, and privacy. So if all those things were met, you could use GPT-3 directly and you would probably sort of like a, a, a summarization that is as good as the one that we were generating. However, because because that did not exist, it's a very interesting intermediate sort of like uh, step to sort of like, again, prime GPT-3 with some knowledge and some examples and then let it generate all these other training examples that you can then use to train your own I mean, you're not going to train a GPT-3, but you don't need to, right? Because the complexity of the model and the number of parameters that GPT-3 has is because it's a, it's a language model and it's a universal language model, right? But the model that you're training, which is very much focused on summarization and summarization in a particular domain, you can train a much smaller mo- model, much more efficient with the right data, and you're going to get the same... I mean, I'd be interested. I don't know if it's exactly the same accuracy or it's even better because, again, there's the the question of like how much a universal language model can be as good as a smaller model on a very specific task, right, which is what we train. Uh, that makes total sense. That's really cool. I guess I wonder, do, do, you, do you worry about the data like training on the conversations that you have, I imagine those are incredibly sensitive conversations with patients. If you use that data to train models, is it possible that some of the information could kind of bleed through into the models? Like, do you, do you take precautions somehow to try to remove personally identifying information before yes. you train a model on the data? Yes, uh, we do. All our models, sorry, our, all our data sets that are used for our models go through a, the identification process, and we do make sure that the the identifiers that our models, our original data set have, are actually extracted. That being said, you can never guarantee a hundred percent perfection, right? On 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 those the identification of text is in itself a research task. So there's different approaches to it, and there's different things that can be done. But even with that, you'll get as far as a particular percentage of uh, accuracy. We're we're pretty we're pretty confident that most of our data sets that we use to train the models are pretty well de-identified. 
which then in turn means that the likelihood that then something even bleeds into the model is very, very small, right? Because it would need to be the combination right. of like something makes it through the de-identification step plus something gets picked up in the model that then can be retrieved. But that otherwise, sure, it would be a concern, right? Do you have systems to evaluate the quality of the models before you deploy a new one into production? Or do you do like live production monitoring on the, on the quality of models? Is that We do have systems and we do have a process in, in place. We, we have different data sets, different metrics, and different sort of like processes to make sure that mm, we detect any anomaly. And it's, it's interesting because, in, in fact, I was talking today to Francois, who is leading my AI engineering team, and they're building a tool now that we're, we're going to be using that basically automatically enables you to analyze the anomalies that we detect when we change a model. But by seeing actual examples of like, what is the actual case? I was talking about the vignettes that we have, for example, for mm, diagnosis, right? So mm -hmm. if you train a new model and all of a sudden you see a different, like, hey, this metric is lower than in the previous version of the model, that's okay. But in this case, you really want to understand, is it being unfair to a particular demographic? Is it worse for older people or for women or for, or can I actually go and see where it made the error? And then interestingly, now you need the collaboration of a physician or a doctor to sit with you and say, hey, this new version of the model decided that this thing instead of the flu was a cold. Is this correct or what's going on? And then you need to debug like, and in most cases, and I know this is something that in other companies, people have this kind of debugging tools, but it they are usually debugging tools that a layman or a lay person can understand, right? Like when I was on Netflix, we did have a similar tool that you would see the shows and like, whoa, this ranking doesn't make sense. But if, if you're dealing with a highly knowledge intensive domain like medicine, you actually need that collaboration with the doctors. And we do have doctors in the development team and we do have experts that are kind of like sitting hand in hand with the engineers and the researchers to do those kind of iterations and debugging and QA of the medical models. That's cool. So what does the interface look like? It sort of shows somehow the explanation behind why the model made the, the choice that it made? Yes, yes. It, it shows the, the overall dif difference between the, the, the previous model and the current model. And then you can click and see sort of like, okay, what are the, where, what are the ones that it got right and what the ones that it got wrong compared the two models? And you can kind of like see the diff with a color code so you can actually dig and say, okay, well, yeah, this one that got wrong, it's very wrong. So it's, we should not move forward. Do you try to build models? I mean, GPT would be kind of the furthest from explainability you could go to, but do some of your models, do you try to build them in ways that they maintain explainability? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. I think explainability is, it's important but it's also kind of tricky in the case of medicine in the sense that not even doctors many times have an explanation for their decisions. 
In fact, something that is kind of a little bit nuanced, but I think it might be interesting is many times doctors will go all the way to prescribing without having a clear diagnosis. They, that's called symptomatic treatment, right? So it's like, oh gosh, I don't know if this is flu or a cold, but no matter what, I'm going to prescribe you this particular thing because it's going to be good for both things. And they don't really have a clear diagnosis. And that's, that's not bad. I mean, it's like, it, it's, it's okay. It's, it's better to do that than to do nothing. In fact, the good thing is to be doing some symptomatic treatment and then following up and understanding like, what's the evolution? Did I get it right or not? So as long as you have a possibility to follow up. So explanation is not always possible and it's not always available in an imperfect information situation, right? Now, that being said, if you do have it, it's it's good to provide it. And it's something that we we have definitely worked on, on sort of like providing explanations. I'm, I'm actually a, a, a fan of providing, explain, so adding explainability as a post hoc process to the model. I think it's something that has a lot of value and does not necessarily require the model itself to be explainable, but you need to go after the fact and understand like, okay, this is why the model picked this. And is there an explanation that can explain in a, in a simple way what is it that, why did the model pick this particular option or this particular class, right? So how do you do that? So if you have a really complicated model, like too, too complicated to inspect, what kinds of methods do you like to use to sort of get at some explainability of, of why the model did what it did? Yeah, I mean, there's different um, approaches to, to adding explainability, right? I mean, the, the simplest one is you approximate the decision boundaries of your model, no matter how complex, no matter whether it's a deep model or not, by a simpler linear model, and then use that to build the explanations, right? That is a typical approach that many of the explainability solutions take, and that's one that can actually mm, work pretty well, and it, it's one that we have experimented with and even implemented. I will say that's not really implemented in the product yet, but it's been implemented sort of like as a prototype. And I think we even wrote about it in, in one of our blog posts. So that's, I think, one of the easiest, but also at the same time, more effective ways to explain things that have sort of like a complex, uh, nonlinear decision boundary and cannot be explained in sort of easy, easy terms. I will, again, say that in, in many cases in, in, in medicine, those decisions do exist, right? And even though as much as we try to infer causality from the decisions, those are <coughs> hard to come by because the, there's a lot of sort of like nuances in, in, in the ways that the information is being processed and the decision boundaries of the models are being constructed. Interesting. Well, we're getting close to running out of time and we always have two questions that we end on and I want to make sure that I, I cover them with you. The, the, the second to last question that we always ask is what's an underrated aspect of machine learning? And I guess I would say across you know, your career at, at Netflix and, and Quora and Curai, what, 
what's been a topic in, in ML that's been maybe particularly useful to you or, or important that you feel like research doesn't cover as much as it should? I think an important topic that is not covered in research enough, despite the fact that I've, <laughs> I, I've tried to push it myself because I was a researcher back in the days before going into industry, is mm, what actually happens to models in the wild, right? It's like, it's a different thing that you mm, build a model with perfect data that has been cooked in the lab and you know what it is and you can have sort of like control over the boundaries and and mm, even mm, understand the the distribution of the noise and all the different variables than to product in the wild and to then be faced with sort of like all kinds of different drifts in the data distribution, noise and whatnot. And I think that is something that is not usually research enough, understandably so, because you you can't, I mean, most research is done with data sets that are available and are mm, distributed in a way that they're kind of artificial, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I... I I went into Netflix through the Netflix Prize, so I know <laughs> that, that that was a, a data set that was very, very good and very exciting to make progress in recommendations and the re recommender systems arena. However, it was very different from then the data that I found out we had at Netflix when I was there. And there were <laughs> kind of a, all these other things happening, right? So, right. Yeah. And I, I guess it's also kind of a hard problem to to formalize, right? Like there's so many variations on it. I mean, I know a lot of people talk about it, but it's hard to, I guess it's sort of like well, ML robustness or something, right? Yeah, I, I think, yeah, robustness is one. I think another one that is very interesting, we have done some work on it is out of band classification or prediction, right? It's like building models that can react to mm, classes that have not been seen during training, for example, that's uh, a, a very important aspect and one that gets a little bit of attention in research, but not so much. I will say, for example, that particular problem is one that it's relatively easy to replicate in a lab, right? So basically you can build models that say, hey, I have 100 classes, but I'm only gonna let the model see 50 during training see what it does with the other 50, right? And the model needs to understand, hey, I haven't seen this class. Sorry, I don't know what to say. So that's an example of something that out-of-band classification is one that kind of mimics some of the problems you see in real life, right? Because in real life, you deploy a you will deploy a model and it will see something that is very different from the things they've been trained on. And having the model be able to raise their hand and say, hey, I don't know what this is because I've never seen it before. That's a, a very interesting, for example, it's a, it's a specific concrete case, but it's one that relates very much to sort of like having these models in real life and being able to replicate this kind of situations in, in a lab. For mm -hmm. example, another one that we've worked on is on introducing introducing artificial noise on the training and testing data by using some domain knowledge right for example you in medicine you can 
you know the prevalence of some symptoms and you can say, I know that if I ask people if they have a headache, many people are going to say yes, because most people have a headache, right? It, it might not even be related to the current situation and their current condition, but people are going to say yes. Well, you can play around with those knobs and introduce artificial noise, noise sorry, in your training data set to then anticipate some of the noise you're going to be finding in in the wild in in real life so that's another example so yeah it is hard to recreate the exact situation you're going to find out there but i think there are some interesting ways to mimic at least some of those situations that probably mm, deserve more attention than they usually get do you have a just it's fine if not but do you have a favorite paper on the topic that you'd like us to to point to or any any research we could send people to want to learn more well (laughs) i have our papers that I, yeah, could, that, I, that I could point you to. I mean, we, the, the two things the, the two things that I mentioned, we did dermatology image classification with out of band distribution. That one that refers to the first thing that I was talking about, and the artificial noise that we introduce in synthetic data. That's uh, a paper we wrote on diagnosis and diagnosis training. And of course, those papers cite a lot of other papers that could be interesting. So I could definitely point you to to those. Cool. That's that's perfect. Having a good starting place. Yeah. By the way, if people are interested, there's a in our tech blog at Curi, we have sort of like a full list of our publications. We probably have now the order of fifteen or twenty publications, and there's I I like to be very open about the research we do, and I think that comes from my old times as a researcher. I'm very um, much in favor of sort of like open publications and sharing knowledge. And you will find most of that in our blog post. Cool. Awesome. We'll definitely put a link to that. And, and my final question is, is kind of broad, but I'm, I'm really curious in your case. And the question is basically what, what's been the hardest part or maybe the most unexpectedly challenging part of getting ML models deployed in production, just kind of going from like conception of like, this is the thing we want to do to like, here's a working model. Like where are the big bottlenecks? Well, yeah, that is a broad question. And I think there's a, there's a number of things that come to mind. I think at the highest level, one of the very difficult things to get right is how do you connect the offline metrics that you have in anything you're doing in any model in the lab to what's going to be the real impact that that model has on your product, right? Mm -hmm. And we would love for that to be a clean thing and say, hey, you know, if I get my precision and recall and my F1 measure uh, increases, I know that that's going to work in production and that's going to generate this much lift and whatever, People are either going to click more, be happier, or love the product more. That's usually that road (laughs) from what you see in your model in the lab to the model in production is not that straight. And there's a lot of issues that get in the way and a lot of questions and a lot of things that are really, really important to uh, get right. And some of them relate to mundane things like the UX, right? How is the user experience? Like, how are you presenting things to, in our case, the patient or the doctor and how are they they reacting? Your model might be awesome, but it's like, if they're not seeing it or 
it's confusing or you're not explaining it right, that's not going to help in any way, or it might be worse, right? It might be confusing. So I think the connection between sort of like research and, and modeling and the actual user experience and the interface and how that's actually introduced into the product is an aspect that I find fascinating myself. And it's it's very hard to have people that actually understand the end-to-end, right? It's like, because you need to have a lot of, a very broad experience that goes all the way from the modeling to the metrics, to the product, to the user understanding, the user research. That's, that's really hard to cover end-to-end. And then you need to build all that through collaboration and through sort of like teams that have the ability to collaborate. And in medicine where that's even harder because you throw in the domain knowledge, that even becomes sort of like more tricky, right? It's like something that you might see in the lab and it's like, whoa, this is fantastic. This is getting the metric. This is actually going to be a killer feature. It might turn out that it's a killer feature in the wrong way. Sorry, I shouldn't have used that metaphor probably in this context, <laughs> but uh it's 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 important to to understand that the results that you get in in your experiments ha- are mediated by many things before they can be evaluated in an A/B test, for example. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time. I, I really appreciate uh, this conversation, and it's super interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. If you're enjoying Gradient Descent. I'd really love for you to check out Fully Connected, which is an inclusive machine learning community that we're building to let everyone know about all the stuff going on in ML and all the new research coming out. If you go to wmb.ai slash FC, you can see all the different stuff that we do, including Gradient Descent, but also salons where we talk about new research and folks share insights, AMAs where you can directly connect with members of our community, and a Slack channel where you can get answers to everything from very basic questions about ML to bug reports on weights and biases to uh, how to hire an ML team. We're looking forward to meeting you.